We've been reading sort of bigger portions of scripture together as we've been making our way through our epic series. So I'm going to read this with us. Unfortunately, unless I put like nine font, I can't get it all on there every week. So you've got most of it, but I'm going to read Genesis 22 verses 1 through 19. Um, If you're a regular attender here at America Springs, I do encourage you to bring your Bible. If you don't have one, we've got them in the bookstore. We typically sell them, but we will give them to you. We would love for you to have your very own Bible. So if that's something that we can bless you with, please let us know. Um, Let me read this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Well, if you've been with us the last few months, uh, we've been going through this series called Epic. You know that we've been searching the pages of the Bible to look at all the ways in which Scripture uh, points to Jesus, leads us to Jesus. And we've talked about a couple of months ago, you know, the Old Testament and the New Testament both testify about Jesus. That's why they're called the Old Testament and the New Testament. They testify to Christ. And he's the central figure of history, generally speaking, and he's the central figure of Scripture, specifically speaking. Okay, It all comes together, ultimately, in Jesus. 
And with that said, I want us to take a look at the last four verses of our text from this morning. And I want us to notice again God's covenant promise to Abraham, okay? Let me read it real quick. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Okay? This is now the fourth time that God talks to Abraham about this covenant promise that he's he's made. And we've touched on each one of these covenant promises that God reiterates to Abraham as we've made our way through Genesis, okay? And in summary, God chose Abraham to bless him. Maybe if you've been a part of what we've been doing the last couple of months, you're starting to get tired of this. You're like, I know this. Good, good. This is important, okay? God chose Abraham to bless him, not just so that Abraham would be blessed, but so that Abraham could be a blessing so that through the family of Abraham, God could bless all of the nations and all of the families of the earth. And here again, God reiterates that promise. Verse 18, okay? So how will Abraham be blessed to bless all the nations of the earth? From the family lineage of Abraham, generation after generation will come Jesus. And Jesus will be nailed to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. And any person who looks to him for salvation, for redemption, for forgiveness, any family, any nation, any person from any tribe or tongue or place will be saved from the destruction of sin and death through the work of Jesus on the cross. Okay, that's the covenant promise. Abraham, I'm going to do this thing through you. And it's going to take the rest of the biblical narrative for that to play out. That's what we're going to do the rest of this year. But unfold this plan will. Okay, there's no stopping it. So now that I've pointed that out, I want to I start with the obvious. This is a story that obviously reverberates with the themes of the cross, right? I mean, if you've been hanging around the church for any time at all, you can see the symbolism here. A loving father takes his precious and only child and gives him up as a sacrifice. Okay, that's the, the story of Abraham and Isaac. And then there's Jesus, the Son of God, is crucified as the perfect Lamb of God by the will of the Father. And in this story, Isaac is a clear allusion to Jesus. There's no doubt about it. Okay? Just point that out. But I want us to go a little bit of a different direction here. I want us to take a look at, at Abraham who I think is a character that sometimes gets a little neglected in this story, right? Because Isaac is going to be the sacrifice. There's obviously a lot going on there. Okay, let me read verses 1 through 3. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. If if this was my name in here, not Abraham, it would say, and Grady slept in late, he took a long time to pack, he procrastinated, and there wasn't time to leave that day. Um, But... You know, Abraham is, uh, is quite, quite a stunning character in this regard. But what initially jumps off the page to me 
is that God tested Abraham. And I hope that you have room in your theology for God to test you. It's not an easy piece of theology for for us to, to, to ponder. But the truth is, in Scripture, you cannot escape the fact that God tests his people. And hopefully, you never have to go to the extreme that Abraham went to. I pray that for you, that your testing is never to the extreme that Abraham goes through. But nonetheless, you will be tested as a child of God. And for Abraham, I would say God has three sovereign purposes for his test that I want us to try and be wise and learn from this morning, okay? I want to go through these from the the most easy to comprehend to the most difficult to comprehend, okay? The first one, and if you have your notes, I've laid these out for you. The first one is God tests us to develop us and to grow us. God tests us to refine us. God intends for his people to be sanctified, which to put in simple terms means God intends for his people to be holy, to be made holy, to go through a process of growing in holiness. And unfortunately, this never happens instantaneously. I wish, okay? I gave my life to Jesus when I was four years old. I don't really remember it, but I wish that when I prayed that prayer and gave my life to Jesus that I had just become holy at that moment. But that's not how it works, okay? Uh, This always, this sanctification, this growing in holiness, it always comes through increased pressure over a period of time. You know how a diamond is created. You're probably already familiar with this, right? You take a worthless piece of coal, and through a long, slow process, you crush it under intense weight, and you burn it through extraordinary heat. And through this burning and this crushing, this shoddy piece of coal that's more or less worthless is slowly refined into a diamond that we give so much value to. And the first chapter of the book of James, if you've ever read it, uh, it tells us to consider trials that we experience in this life, consider the testing, testings that we go through, a joyful experience. Because when the testing is done, when our, when our faith has been tested, what, produce, what that process produces is holiness, perfection, completeness are the words that James uses. And see, the truth about, about God testing Abraham is that God wasn't testing Abraham to see what Abraham would do. Okay, God already knew what Abraham would do. God knows all things. God tested Abraham in order to fill Abraham with the kind of faith that Abraham would need to fully rely on God for God to unveil his purposes in his life. Okay, God's intention was to grow Abraham into a man of great faith by using this test to reveal to Abraham that God is powerful enough to overcome any circumstances, to fulfill his promises no matter what obstacles are in the way, even death, even death. Hebrews talks about Abraham knew that God would be faithful even to raise Isaac from the dead, should the need be. And so don't think that God was testing Abraham to see what Abraham would do. God was testing Think instead that God was testing Abraham to teach Abraham what God would do. And to develop Abraham and give him a more mature understanding of who God is. 
to instill in Abraham a sense of assurance that God will provide no matter how bleak the circumstances might appear, which is why Abraham calls the mountain, the Lord will provide. He learns that lesson. Abraham learned what God intended for him to learn through the test. Second test that you might go through. God tests us to check our sincerity, okay? Do we love God? Do we love God or do we just love the gifts that God gives us? Remember, Abraham had been waiting decades for his promised son Isaac to come. At least 30 years from the initial promise until this moment. And it happens sometimes that when a couple who has struggled to have a child are finally blessed with a kid, it happens a lot of times that they end up sheltering this child so much. They protect their precious child with this almost superhuman fervor. Because the child is so precious, after having come at so much struggle and so much toil and so much suffering, this child has become an object of almost infinite worth to the parents. I mean, a child is already of almost infinite worth to a parent, aren't they? But then you add this extra layer of the difficulty. And we can imagine that the case would be so with Abraham and Sarah. After waiting and waiting and waiting all these years, Isaac was the blessing of long, hard years of painful waiting. And now God had given Isaac, and like the song we just sung, he gave Isaac, and now he was going to take him away. And the question that boils slowly to the surface for Abraham is, what is Abraham's object of his affection? What is the object of his affection? Is Isaac the be-all, end-all of Abraham's existence? Or is God the be-all, end-all of Abraham's existence? Is the gift that has been given to Abraham by God greater than the one that has bestowed the gift? Is Abraham's love for God sincere, or does it exist only in so much as God gives him nice things? And now again, please understand, God already knows what Abraham is going to do in the test. He already knows. He's not testing Abraham to find out. He's testing Abraham so that Abraham can wrestle with this question and come to an understanding of his sincerity, of his faith, with fear and trembling. What is that object of my affection? The the truth is, God will be second to none in your life. And he's going to test us to teach us the importance of the truth that our relationship with him is first and foremost in all things. And is our heart sincerely in love with him is the greatest thing that we can have our hearts set on, is the question. And through testing, we learn this the hard way. The third way is finally, God tests Abraham just to see if Abraham will obey. Okay, this is by far the most difficult kind of testing to suffer through, truly. Um, I, I went through a season of this kind of suffering in, in my life years ago. But in, 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 the reason it's the most difficult is because in each of the previous kinds of testing, there's some sort of benefit for us. We reap some sort of reward on the other side of the test. Okay? In the first, we win our personal growth and we can look back and we can celebrate the ways in which God has moved in our lives, in which the way his testing has led to greater character and perseverance and holiness. We celebrate that. 
And in the second, we find that in the end, we receive the true object of all of our desires. We get God himself, who gives freely of himself, supplies all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, as the New Testament says. And in the third kind of testing, the test of obedience is what I'm calling it, the test of obedience, there's really little for us to gain in the traditional sense in which we think about gaining things, okay? Which makes it all that more significant, but all that more difficult. And the question is essentially this, as we go through this test. Will we obey God in his commands because he is God and we are his subjects? How do you like that for a theological imperative? That's a tough pill to swallow. Okay? It flies in the face of self-glorifying humanity. And this is the kind of obedience that reveals the heart, I would say, of a truly mature Christian. Will you obey God because he is God and you are not? Not just because he's the giver of good things. God is God. And as God, he deserves all of the glory, all of the honor, all of the credit, all of the praise, all of the treasure, all of the worship. He deserves it all, he gets it all, and we get nothing. Except the all-surpassing joy of knowing that our God is endlessly glorified through Christ Jesus. But there's nothing for my flesh in that. There's nothing for me in that. John Piper has this wonderful saying. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Man, that's a strange nuance, right? It's not we are most glorified in God when God is most satisfied in us. That's how a lot of people preach the Bible these days, truly. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The test of obedience is this. Are you happy making God happy? Regardless of the cost to you, are you happy making God happy? And God is not an object for us to use to our end, although many people try. However, we actually are his objects to use to his end. Okay, And fortunately for us, it's not all bad, fortunately for us, God is good. God is loving. God is kind. He's gracious. He's merciful. So we can take uh, great confidence in his character. Be assured in the fact that his character is such that as he pursues his own glory, we will benefit exponentially and ultimately suffer no lasting harm or injury because of the purposes of God. Okay? And if you're not there yet, that's okay. But you may have a season in your life where God tests you to ask you, will you be obedient because I am God? And the truth is, this, this, this idea of God, it pisses a lot of people off. It really does. A lot of people who don't think that it's fair for God to demand what God wants to demand, to demand that we obey him. And, and I, I can understand that. I get that. Okay? But the test of obedience is the hardest because God drives home. He just, he just drives it home. The fact that he is God and we are not, and most often, most often, the end result is being in this place of just a stripping of the soul. 
that leaves us just naked and exposed before God. And if you need more biblical proof than this moment, this testing of Abraham, read the book of Job. I mean, there's just no way to even make sense of the book of Job. Someday I'll have the courage to preach on it. But the message is essentially, Job, I'm God. And that's enough. And in this text here, we see just that for Abraham. You know, God demands obedience in the sacrifice of Isaac. And Abraham is left with no choice but to submit to the will of God, even though it will cost him everything. His own flesh and blood, his precious child that he's waited so long to receive. So you see why I say that to endure this kind of test requires that a Christian be mature. If you're not going into it, you will be coming out of it. That's for sure. And these are deep theological truths that are tough to plumb. But you may have a season in your life where God requires you to explore them. Now, if we're willing to push through and go to these depths, there's wisdom for us to be learned in what Abraham suffers and goes through. So my question practically is, are you being tested? Think about your life right now. Is God testing you in some regard? If he's not now, take notes because there may come a day. What is it that God is working and willing in you through what he's doing in your life? Can you discern through the power of the Holy Spirit what God is willing in your life right now? If not yet, then I I, I challenge and encourage you, spend some time in prayer. Ask God to reveal that to you. You know, if it's the test of growth and development, let me go back through these. If it's that first test of growth, the test of sanctification, can you identify the area where your character is deficient, where God intends for you to grow, the area where he is calling you to be at work? Are you willing to go through the heat and the pressure to be refined into the jewel that God intends for you to be? And let me encourage you, if you're going through that test, press on and pray, 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 pray for the boldness, the steadfastness, the courage mentioned in the book of James to endure that testing of your faith. And don't give up. Hang in there. Press on. Stand firm. If your testing is that second, the test of sincerity, are you willing to acknowledge your idolatry? Can you admit the thing that sits in the throne of your life? Can you see the gift that God has given you that you've begun to hold on to in higher esteem than the one who gives it to you? And as God rips that thing from your hands, your clutching grasp, can you see his grace even in that action, that love as he sets you free from the slavery to that thing? And let me encourage you, if you're going through that test, again, pray, pray, pray. Pray for a sincere heart and the willingness to love the gift so that you can win the giver who gives it. And don't give up. Hang in there. Press on. Stand firm. And if your testing is the third, the test of obedience, will you obey the word of God even though you stand to reap no tangible benefit? Will you obey God simply because he is God and you are his subject? Through the pain, through the struggle, again, like the song that we just sung, will you believe that in the glory of God is your greatest satisfaction and blessed be the name of the Lord? And I want to encourage you, if that's your struggle, if that's your test, 
Humble yourself before God and pray, pray, pray. Pray for the faith to be obedient so that God can give you a greater measure of himself as the reward. And don't give up. Hang in there. Press on. Stand firm. Now, the the simple truth is, you won't. In your own power, you won't. Try with all of the might of your will and all of the courage of your heart, and you still will not pass the test of faith. You will fail. But, but, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged, because there is one who has passed this test for you. Jesus, who went to the cross, he passed the test of obedience. Jesus, who died for your sake, he passed the test of sincerity. Jesus, who died so that you could be redeemed, he passed the test of sanctification. Jesus, who was tested and remained obedient to the Father for the glory of the Father. Jesus, who was tested and whose heart never failed to fix its affections on the Father. Jesus, who was tempted and abused and beaten and suffered all kinds of trials and condemnation at the hands of those who crucified him. But he remained holy and perfect, steadfast in the love of the Father until the very end. And where you will fail, Jesus will always prevail. And this is why the Apostle Paul, he writes in 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about a test that he went through where he pleaded with God to be relieved. And God's reply was this, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What a gentle no. (laughs) No, Paul. Because my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. No, I will not let the test end. But you'll get through it. And Paul goes on to write, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying that my failures to pass the test that God brings into my life only work to further bring glory to Jesus. Because where I fail, he succeeds. Where I am not enough, he is enough. It's Jesus who lifts me up to be victorious in the tests of my life. And as long as I look to him for my sufficiency, as long as I look to him for my victory, as long as his grace is enough, then there's no trial I will not overcome. So you will not fail in Christ. Not by my own strength, Paul says, but by his And see, because Jesus was tested and he passed, and so will you through Christ. And and did Jesus pass for his own benefit? I mean, this is the question that now has to be asked. Did Jesus pass for his own benefit? Absolutely not. Jesus was God. He didn't need to prove anything. He was already perfect and holy and, and, 
in perfect communion with the Father. He didn't do it for his own good. He passed the test for you so that, in, so that you in him might have the victory. Now the amazing thing about the story of Abraham and Isaac that often gets overlooked is Abraham. Okay, Most people think poor Isaac who was bound to be cru- or sacrificed on an altar But what about poor Abraham, the father, who's willing to suffer the loss of his beloved son for the sake of the covenant promise? Man, and what about God, our father, who is willing to nail Jesus to the cross so that you could receive the promise of the blessing? I'm a father. I have four kids. And let me tell you, if I had to choose between sacrificing my own life or the life of my child, A thousand out of a thousand times, I would give up my own life before the life of my child. To give my own life, as difficult as it would be, in comparison to giving the life of my child, having to make that choice. My life or Aiden's life, my life or Karis's life, my life or Soren or Briley's life, that's a no-brainer, right? Mine, any day of the week, any time. But that's not how God loved us. He gave his son, his only son, whom he loved so that we could be saved. And I've had non-Christians tell me before that they could never believe in a God who would make a father sacrifice his son like Abraham was called to do. They think, what a cruel God. And man, all I can think is, although that's fair enough, I, I get it, All I can think is, what about a heavenly father who's so determined to save me and save you and save his creation that not even the ultimate price of his own son would keep him from going through with his intention to redeem creation? Not even the death of Christ on the cross at the will of the father would stop him. How about a kind and gracious and selfless God like that who instead of requiring child sacrifice to be appeased, suffered the pain of child sacrifice himself so that sin could be amended, so that you could be made right. How about a God like that? And I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that that you see the appeal of Christianity here, both as a believer and and a non-believer, that you see the grace of this great God who, though he tests you, has already done everything there is to win your affection. He's done it all. Jesus said, it is finished. And now look, if you're a Christian, the tests are going to come. You know, remember, the blood of Christ prevails, and you are victorious because God sent his victorious son, Jesus, on your behalf. We're going to take communion here this morning. We're going to do that now. And at Maricopa Springs, I always mention we do this by intinction, which means that if you're a believer, when you're prepared, as we go into a time of worship together, when our worship team comes back up here and we begin to sing, I invite you to approach the table in the back of the room where the communion elements are set out. And we've got uh, wine and we have grape juice, whatever your preference is. And you're invited to just tear off a piece of that bread Dip it in the wine or the grape juice, and you can just eat it right there on the spot. I always mention that this is messy, and we're okay with that. Get messy. 
And I encourage you before you go to the table to make yourself right before God. Okay? This is not some meaningless religious ritual that we engage in. This is an act of sharing with Jesus in his death and resurrection. We do this as an act of obedience to remember the great cost of salvation. And we drink the blood of Christ and we eat his flesh. That's what the wine and the bread represents, his flesh and his blood. And we do it as a somber remembrance of the price that the Father paid for our redemption. And so please approach the communion table accordingly when your heart is prepared. And as you eat his flesh and you drink his blood, remember that Jesus is not dead. He is alive. He is victorious. And where we would fail, he prevails. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the prevailing name of Jesus. And I pray for the people in this room who are going through tests right now, God. Give them strength in Jesus to stand firm. Give them courage in Christ to press on. Lord, free them from the burdens. Carry those for them so that they can be victorious through Jesus. And we thank you for communion. We thank you for your bread, for the blood and your body that was given so that we too could share in your victorious resurrection. And Lord, I pray that we would be people who live in that victory. And we give you praise. Amen.